Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. This episode that you will be listening to soon was adapted from my YouTube channel. So you might hear certain idiosyncrasies like me referring to it as a video or something else. So please do forgive those. But otherwise, I hope you do enjoy what's included in this episode. Thank you so much. Hello. Today I'm briefly going to talk about Fatima Murnisi's book, Women and Islam. I find this to be one of the most significant books, at least in the 20th and 21st century, from the point of view of women's rights in Islam. And uh, it's not just a book that talks about women's rights in Islam. It's actually also a work of impeccable research and especially research into historical Muslim sources about a certain specific topic. And that is the political rights of Muslim women and their political role. Now, Murnisi stages a brief encounter in the beginning of her book in the very start where she is actually at a grocery store and she asks the grocer whether or not it is okay in Islam for women to be political leaders. And the man who she had known for a very long time, she had been a regular customer, who is polite, but he quotes her one particular hadith. And hadith, as you know, are the recorded sayings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And that is, those who entrust their affairs to a woman will never know prosperity. Now, this hadith, this saying is attributed to the Prophet himself. And usually, you know, when someone quotes this to you, especially you're a woman, you're pretty much done. Because, you know, what are you going to argue against if there is a mustanad, right, or an authentic hadith that basically says the prophet himself said that women should not get involved in politics and if they do the nation that includes them would not prosper and that sends Marnisi on a journey okay because uh, as a scholar but also as a woman this bothers her and so she calls this a journey historical and an inquiry into the theological debates about the issue just to find out whether the hadith itself is sahih, is is authentic, first of all. And she immediately finds out that the hadith is quoted in Al-Asqalani's volume 13 and it then is uh, has been taken from Sahih Bukhari, one of the uh, six great hadith collectors. So obviously, as far as its provenance, as far as its pedigree is concerned, this is considered an authentic hadith. And then after that, she goes into researching, you know, how many times has the hadith been used? How have people mobilized it? And she finds many modern works in, in which men basically argue through historical accounts by using this hadith as to why it's disastrous for women to get involved in politics. And of course, most of these male religious scholars go to that one major instance in early Islamic history where a woman was actually involved in rising up against a caliph. And that's the story of Hazrat Aisha Siddiqa, the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who basically rose against 
the fourth caliph of Islam, Ali ibn Abi Talib, right? And her reason at that time, of course, was that Ali ibn Abi Talib had not taken into account and taken to justice those who had murdered the third caliph of Islam. And she could point to some of the leaders of that rebellion, those who had killed uh, Hazrat Uthman in the leadership roles in, uh, in Ali's army. And so that's when Aisha, Aisha rises against Ali's forces and there is actually a war. And this war actually by a lot of male scholars is called the first fitna, actual internal war between two opposing forces during the times of the early Islam. And a lot of Muslim scholars, instead of taking this as an example of a woman actually leading an expedition, take it as a cautionary tale and try to read uh, Aisha's leadership of her military expedition, her battle against the caliph of her time as an example of this is what happens when women get involved in politics. And then their argument is further augmented by quoting the particular hadith that we just talked about. So Mernisi as a scholar then goes back to see, okay, who is this hadith attributed to? Now, those of you who know about hadith tradition, how they are collect, of course, are aware that for every hadith to be included in the Sihai Sitta and the six authentic hadith collections by different scholars, uh, the hadith has to pass certain tests, right? There has to be a chain of narration. The person who hears it and who uh, speaks of it either must have heard it from the prophet himself or must have heard it from someone who had heard it from someone who had heard it from the prophet. So there is always a chain of narration. And then the scholars go in and authenticate that chain of narration before a, a hadith, a saying of the Prophet, is included into the final versions of the Sihai Sitta or the six collections of hadith. So what she finds out during her research is that the hadith, the first instance of it being said, is attributed to Abu Bakra, right? Who was, I think, the governor of Basra, but was removed by Aisha when she establishes their headquarters there. And he narrates it 25 years after the death of the Prophet at the moment when Aisha's forces had been defeated. And that is when he narrates it and says, I heard the Prophet say that those who entrust affairs to a woman will never know prosperity. And then he tells his story is that actually the Prophet had said that at the time when the Persian Empire having lost the last male king, had appointed Purundakht, right? Purundukht as uh, the emperor of the Khamenean Empire. And according to Abu Bakra, that's when the prophet has, is believed to have said that those who entrust their affairs to a woman will never prosper. But the question that Marnisi asks is, why is it that he suddenly, at the moment when Aisha has been defeated in battle, recalls this particular hadith? And why so accurately? There is no mention of this hadith before. And then she connects it to Abu Bakr's own political affiliations during the battle because he was one of the ones who abstained. He neither participated with Ali nor with Aisha. But this is a moment where he has to decide, okay, what do I say? Because his future depends on it. Abu Bakr himself also was not from any of the noble families of of Arabia. He actually uh, was the true example of a Muslim rising from slavery 
and to the level of governorship, but his situation was deeply precarious and political. And so we often don't read the utterances of these Islamic historical figures as also as political figures. And he eventually is uh, remains unharmed in the, in after Ali's victory and still maintains his privilege. But then Murnisi also points out that in the Hadith tradition, in figuring out whether a Hadith is authentic or not, almost all the major scholars of Hadith also look at the character of the narrator, right? Whether or not he is reliable, right? And she points to the historical accounts recorded in Muslim history, which would tell you that Abu Bakr was not necessarily a reliable narrator because of all things, he was actually punished. He was actually flogged during the times of Hazrat Umar, the second caliph of Islam, for lying, for making false statements. And even just that should have disqualified him from being an authentic Hadith narrator. And plus, that throughout the battle between Ali right, and uh, Aisha, most of the nobles and people who are in positions of power, even when they are taking sides, they are deeply respectful of Aisha because after all, she's one of the Umahatul Mu'minin. She's one of the mothers of the Muslims. But Abu Bakr, according to Marnisi, had this misogynistic trait which he expresses at the most expeditious moment for not having sided with either side, but to basically secure his future in the victory of Ali over Aisha. So those are the political reasons of the Hadith itself. But according to the rules established by the Muhaddithin, by the scholars, he would have otherwise not qualified as a Mustanad Hadith teller, as, as a, a reliable narrator of hadith and then towards the rest of the book then Marnisi also traces how the early Islam was so revolutionary in breaking the barriers of so many things in the Arab culture but that there is a moment in Medina at the time that it's a city of turmoil where Aisha is blamed for having done something that we all know historically was untrue. But it is that moment where Abdullah bin Obi, the monafic, is spreading rumors that Aisha had had an affair with one of the companions, is that the Prophet stands on the member to defend Aisha and he issues this revelation which basically exonerates Aisha but in the process of exonerating Aisha what the prophet refers to in her defense what punishment should be given to those who had spread rumors against her is the tribal custom so instead of the revolutionary message of Islam that message that defense of Aisha relies on tribal customs and hence there's a turn in the early Islamic history towards the very tribal view of the culture, especially of women's role in it, which gets reinscribed and which eventually becomes the way men traditionally define women's role in the Islamic society against the grain of Islam's own potential itself. And that's what she points out to, right? She also points to the inherent misogyny of some of the companions of the Prophet for which there are historical records of how they thought about women and what kind of role did they want them to play. And that gets 
written into the historical accounts and that's what becomes part of muslim perception about women and she points to the city of medina towards the end where we have this very uh, romanticized view of the city of medina but at the time you know the government not having been fully established with a slave population a lot of poverty the city historically was was a really violent city there was a lot of crime happening in the city and most of it in the public sphere was directed towards women i mean according to murnisi you know men muslim men would stand in the streets and literally accost women right and solicit sex there were instances of rape and so control that the policy that was then adopted was that the muslim women either should avoid going in public or should cover themselves in hijabs so that people standing on the street can differentiate between the slave women and the muslim women now it seems according to her research that the slave women were still a fair target the idea of hijab originally implemented was to differentiate the muslim women from slave women and eventually it becomes associated with the identity of the muslim in the later history you see that whenever muslim armies march against the enemies you know there are slaves captured they are sent to the capital a lot of these enslaved women depending on their beauty become part of the imperial households part, part of the household of the governors and so there is a distinct class of women that rises out of that and these are women who are not hijabi women these are women who can go out free who can hold public offices and hence and they are called ummul walad like these are women who may not have legal married rights but they do produce children and some of these children eventually become caliphs in the abbasid mamun rashid famously you know was the child of a slave woman right and so these women become more prominent in the at least in the arab societies and the arab women are constantly then reduced to the private sphere so in the end like her argument is that the basic hadith that is mobilized by people is actually if read carefully and if we look at the guy who narrated it is probably not authentic and that there was more than just religion at play that there was a politics that these followers of the prophet had their own views of rights of women and she talks about that she talks about how they viewed even sexual relations and how they wanted to assert certain rights and that debate is also in the book and i i do strongly urge you to read it in her conclusion uh, she tells an interesting story and the story is about how problematic it is for male scholars to even accept this argument and she talks about a conference i think it was in united kingdom where she presented a paper on the same topic and some gentleman who was the editor of a islamic journal stood because she was making a claim that sakina one of the granddaughters of ali was a barza woman a woman who did not take hijab right and there were so many other arab women who didn't that who got educated who hold public salons who received male and female guests publicly and this scholar stood up and said well you know you're lying because sakina died at the age of 5 and what are your sources for this and she said she gave him a list of his her sources 
and the gentleman looked at them and said these are not authentic sources and she goes to point out that what she had handed him were the most authentic classical sources of islamic historiography that everyone else cites and so so this idea of talking historically and theologically of political rights of islamic women is is so contested especially by men that it is a terrain which a women scholar must perilously walk i mean think of it this way pakistan for example has a federal sharia court right which gives opinions about any law that's being made whether or not it's islamic or not and there has never been a woman on that court women are about 49% of pakistan's population the justices there are always men it's always assumed that religious scholars have to be men there are very few women who are considered worthy of being calling called a scholar of islam a muhaddis and i would strongly recommend and i'll do a brief lecture on that two of dr nadwi's introduction to his study of muslim muhaddisat it's called al muhaddisat i'll put a link to it in the introduction uh, in the description of you because he's the one who goes and unearths these thousands of muslim women who were hadith scholars who actually taught caliphs held classes right so overall to conclude fatima marnisi's inquiry starts by this one oft quoted hadith she goes into providing us that yes it exists in the sahih hadith it's quoted by uh, bukhari but then she also finds resources to go and read up on who is the one who first narrated it then she gives us historical accounts of how that person abu bakra was not necessarily a reliable narrator of the hadith because of his own public record which should have precluded the hadith from inclusion into the collections anyway and then she gives us a history of how hijab is implemented what were the political reasons behind it right what was at play in the muslim society at that time and i think it's important for those of us who think about these issues those of us who are practicing muslims to actually read such an account of something that defines women's role in the public sphere women's role in politics even today in so many muslim societies and it could be a good start in rethinking the role of women in muslim societies and that is all i have to say today thank you so much for joining me